Scotland wants us to invest a billion quid to protect and rebuild its capital. That's right. Caledonia wants our cash, but the money's not for a new set of walls or an upgrade to the castle for the primary municipality of Edinburgh. The 1,000 millions of pounds is to be invested in Scotland's natural capital. I'm your host, Dr Hannah Rudman, and I've lived here in Scotland for almost 20 years. I currently work as a senior academic at SRUC, Scotland's Rural College. My focus is on what the natural economy sector can do to help the UK and the rest of the world in the face of the grand challenges of climate emergency and biodiversity crisis. Scotland's hosting for the UK the 26th United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties. It's known as COP26 and everyone's going to be here in Glasgow. Between the 31st of October and the 12th of November this year, COP26 will welcome international visitors from around the globe. They'll come in person and online to a summit. That summit brings all parties and countries together to accelerate actions towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The last few hundred years of human activity have created climate changes that threaten human existence. Natural resources are the single most important input to the global economy. Whether it's raw materials like wood from trees, water, flood protection, biodiversity or pollination, nature provides most of the capital that businesses use for the production of their goods and services. Financial values are attached to many assets that businesses use to make products. They have to pay for them. Why don't we do the same with the finite natural resources which our economic activity and well-being depend on? Nature provides critical societal benefits to individuals and communities around the world. The combination of soils, species, communities, habitats and landscapes which provide these ecosystem services and natural assets or natural capital. Can we help Scotland rebuild its natural capital? Can we use nature projects to combat the climate emergency and biodiversity crisis so that future generations have a better world to live and work in? Let's find out. My name is Rory Sanderson, I'm the Riverwoods Development Manager. I'm standing on the banks of the River Tyne in East Lothian and I'm joined by... Bruce Wilson and I am Public Affairs Manager at the Scottish Wildlife Trust. We're meeting folk at a nature-based project called Riverwoods, which is helping to make Scotland's wildlife and communities more resilient for the future. We rely on our landscapes and our rivers to deliver us a huge range of services. Traditionally we might have um, needed our land to provide things like timber and and food from, from crops. 
we now understand that our land and, and our closely connected rivers need to provide a whole range of services. There's a huge need for carbon sequestration. There is a huge need for recreational resource. Um, and there is a, a huge need for, for things like uh, flood prevention and, and management of water. It's really important now with this better understanding that we have that we manage our 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 landscape and, and our rivers to deliver a whole range of ecosystem services. Bruce, how have we humans had an impact on this natural capital? Humans have impact on natural capital in general in a huge variety of manners. We, we, we use natural capital basically to create value and we're historically very, very poor at reinvesting in that natural capital. When it comes to rivers, all sorts of activities that, that, um, that humans take part in, um, such as agriculture, forestry, uh, development, all have an impact on the river system. And there are numerous uh, drivers of, of ecological decline, uh, some direct and, and some indirect. Particularly when it comes to land management in in Scotland, there are conflicting policy directions from, from government. And there are a lot of problems around our inability to properly value what you know what our natural capital is giving us and 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 therefore reinvest in that it's quite often um said that this is this is basically an economic problem in that when when we don't properly value the the services that we get from our natural capital they're often seen as free and hence a complete lack of reinvestment there are some notable exceptions to that that you know work of of some land managers and uh, you know uh, conservation organizations has been has been fantastic but this tends to be in isolated pockets around around Scotland rather than addressing our overall ecological decline and, and things like state of nature are very very clear about how precarious uh, the picture is in in Scotland what would investment in them mean? In Scotland, um, to tackle our nature and climate crisis and to to get to grips with some of the, the difficult targets that we have in place, we are really going to have to get much better at coordinated action. We need to tackle this at scale. And crucially, scale of intervention will allow us to leverage private sector investment it's it's widely acknowledged in things like the recent Das Gupta review and, and and Scottish government papers that private sector funding for our ecological and climate crisis will be absolutely vital. We're quite used to almost hearing a large scale investors saying the money is there, uh, the, the the finance and the capital is is available, but the the scale of opportunity is just not there at the moment. We we um, need this holistic approach to grouping together. Um, packages that, that can be invested in. We really need to tackle our overall ecosystems um, as well as concentrating on specific uh, individual habitats or protected areas. It needs to be it needs to be everything rather than just these um, individual islands of conservation effort. Thanks, Bruce. The Riverbirds Initiative, led by the Scottish Wildlife Trust is looking differently at how we fund conservation projects. 
Riverwoods is an innovative partnership initiative with a wide range of stakeholders and a bottom-up philosophy. We have a collective vision of creating a network of healthy, resilient river systems throughout Scotland, delivering a range of environmental, socio-economic and financial benefits. The Riverwoods initiative is at an early stage, however we have made significant progress so far in developing a model for delivery of a blended finance approach in Scotland. The Riverwood Science Group has been helping to build the evidence base and has undertaken a review of available scientific evidence that supports the multiple benefits of riparian woodland in Scotland. The creation of riparian woodlands and other interventions holds the potential to deliver large financial savings to, for example, downstream insurance companies. We're examining the linkages between the proven benefits of riparian woodlands, the monetary value of these benefits, and who is the beneficiary of these benefits. Theoretically, financial savings could provide long-term income, which could offset the initial investment required to undertake the interventions. Riverwoods is at an early stage of development at this time, but we're making exciting progress. For more information, please visit our website at www.riverwoods.org.uk. We rely on and have an impact on natural capital. Humanity's demand for natural resources is outpacing Earth's supply. And that, in turn, has led to risks to our own homes and livelihoods. By making these connections between the problem and cause visible, the protection and enhancement of Scotland's natural wealth becomes essential. Riverwoods is just one of many innovative attempts to drive investment into Scotland's nature. Another project achieving social, human and economic benefit for business by investing in the natural assets of the landscape for the environmental benefit is in southwest Scotland. <laughs> Should we just try and nestle in here yeah, then with do. the calves? Yeah. I travelled to High Garfer Farm in Maybole, Ayrshire so to find out more. How old are these? Those are the tiny ones and then they get a bit... They're yesterday's. Right. They look... Very happy. So our agricultural and natural landscapes host supply chains that produce the goods and foods we need as a nation. The role that the private sector businesses can play in investing in natural capital has been trialled by a project in southwest Scotland. It's called a Landscape Enterprise Network, or LENS for short. I'm here with Lucy Philby from SEPA, Scotland's Environmental Protection Agency, and Andy Griffiths from Nestle. So, Andy, tell me what a lens is. So, a lens is a, a landscape enterprise network, and, and basically it's a coming together of different organisations to help co-invest into transforming a landscape and restoring the condition of that landscape. It works on the basis of looking at organisations who have an interest in that landscape or a dependency in that landscape. And it's not just for organisations like ourselves in the agri-food sector who clearly have an interest, for example, in southwest Scotland in fresh milk supply, but also organisations who may be reliant on water availability, flood risk, air quality, or even issues like transport infrastructure. It helps those organisations understand those dependencies and then come together to co-invest and fund and support farmers and land managers to implement regenerative practices which help restore and regenerate those landscapes. Lucy, that sounds to me like 
SEPA has an important interest in ensuring that that ecosystem works together. Why is it better if you think about it as an ecosystem? So we overuse our natural resources. If everybody um, in the world lived like we live in Scotland today, we would need three planets and we only have one. So the impact we're having on our natural environment, when we overuse resources, we are limiting the, the functionality of assets like soils and aquifers and how they can support us in the future. So by bringing everybody together to look at their collective demands on a landscape, um, we can try and find solutions that mean that everybody is supported and that businesses can, and organisations can prosper. So, Andy, can you explain what this particular supply chain in this area um, is uh, from the farm end, which is where we are today, to what we might pop in our mouths at the end of uh, the supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. So in southwest Scotland, we have a particular interest from a, a confectionery perspective. So we manufacture a range of different confectionery products in the UK, many of them well-known and well-loved, like Kit Kat, Toffee Crisp, Rolos. And as part of those products, milk is a really key ingredient. So we source our milk for our confectionery products in southwest Scotland. We use about 8% of Scotland's dairy output to go into those products. So for us, supporting the farmers within those landscapes to address that is clearly important to us, both in terms of building resilience in our supply chain, but also in terms of positively affecting the environmental and social impacts of, of that supply chain as well. Lucy, what could be the issues arising from a supply chain using the landscape? Sure. So um, here in southwest Scotland, um, what we're seeing in terms of the impacts of climate change on, on farmers here is um, there's, there's risks in terms of flooding. There's risks in terms of water scarcity and prolonged dry periods, but also some of that um, shorter inten but intensive rainfall is adding to the risk of diffuse pollution from agricultural runoff. So um, businesses in the future who prosper will have taken steps to go beyond compliance and go beyond the statutory minimum requirements of environmental regulation. Um, and SEPA are keen to support businesses who want to do that. We're working with Nestle as they have taken steps to support across their value chain, the people and businesses and communities to, to make changes in, in that beyond compliance space. So in terms of addressing some of the environmental challenges that are posed by the agri-food system, it's really important that we think about how we can transition that, that system. And really the core opportunity is moving to regenerative agriculture. And what that really means is applying practices which are nature positive, so they actually have a positive impact in terms of the natural environment and the nature and ecosystems that, that surround it. Now in terms of that transition, uh, a lot of those practices have been tried and tested many, many years ago. There are many new practices, but, but very much nature-based. And what we need to do as businesses is really look at how we can support farmers in managing that transition. 
the, this way of farming can appear quite different to the uh, approaches that have been used over recent decades. So funding the farmers, providing advisory support and working with a range of partners, both the regulators, also ENGOs and uh, advisory partners as well, can help support those farmers in understanding what kind of uh, practices they can apply that are relevant to their farm, to their business, but which deliver both food-based outcomes that we need, but also deliver the environmental outcomes in parallel with that. All right, so there's lots of different business models in a supply chain, um, Lucy. So what are the issues and challenges for the, the different businesses trying to understand how they uh, work together? So um, many businesses across Scotland have a direct relationship with the, the landscape organisations and businesses like Nestle, who, who draw agricultural produce from the land, but, but other businesses involved in housing, linear infrastructure, tourism, they maybe don't have that understanding of their direct demands on a landscape and they don't have the relationships with land managers already to help them build some of those solutions and that's where Lens can, can really help. Yeah, so Andy... Just tell me a little bit about where you see the benefits and opportunities from operating with this lens model. So there are a number of benefits in terms of managing or or engaging with a a lens model. The the first one is it separates out the payment for for produce, product, from the payment for functional outcomes or ecosystem services. By doing that, what it means is a whole range of different sectors can engage in that lens model. Some will be paying for product-based outcomes separate to lens, but lens enables all of those businesses to come together and pay for the environmental outcomes. As a result of that, you get a number of benefits. The first one is scale. So you've got a much bigger pot to to work with. The second one is the stacked benefits. So when you look at the kind of practices that the farmers and land managers will be delivering, many of them will deliver multiple outcomes. And by bringing those funders together, they can co-fund the interventions which will optimise those, those different outcomes. The third one is density. So if we, even as a business as large as Nestle, if we invest in our supply chain, we can have an impact, but there will still be a whole range of farmers and land managers who sit around and outside of our supply chain. But by bringing in those other investors, we can also enable them to deliver some of those practices and help transform the landscapes which are within which we all uh, rely. And Lucy, do you see opportunities for this lens model um, expanding? Should we have more lenses across Scotland? Sure. Lens grows like a honeycomb um, as interest with it grows. So we've seen the initial start of lens across Cumbria and southwest Scotland in in terms of dairy supply chain grow to be uh, 14 different lens opportunities across the UK. And the conversations we've had in Scotland recently have really meant that there's been interest growing in the Highlands and Islands and across on the East Coast and Edinburgh. Who are we looking for to be an investor in lens opportunities? Um, To drive any um, investment uh, through this or or any of the other routes in the Billion Pound Challenge, businesses and organisations really need to understand their dependencies on on the landscape. Um, And people are at different parts of the journey on that. 
But if everybody can get to that stage where they understand that and we can collaborate in places, people can start to lift their head and really start to engage with lens and other mechanisms that drive the pace and scale of change we need to deliver transformation. Andy, what would your um, advice be to businesses considering their environmental and uh, social um, governance challenges? I think there's a growing understanding by businesses and societies of the growing environmental challenges that we're facing into and a recognition that we need to transform the systems on which we rely. The reality is that we need to take action now and not wait and there's some clear evidence-based insights that we can leverage but also we need to step on the journey to further extend and build out that, uh, that evidence base. So for me the sooner businesses can lift their head, understand their dependencies and engage through models like Lens to take real practical action within the landscape, the better. Recognising the scale of the challenge and the chasm between what we need to invest in nature and what we currently do invest In May 2020, the Scottish Wildlife Trust and the Scottish Environment Protection Agency published a route map, a journey that Scotland could go on to deliver £1 billion of investment in nature in Scotland. It was an ambitious rallying call to the finance sector, the public sector and community partners to come together to create new mechanisms and ways to invest in nature. Projects like Riverwoods and Lens have been early and key steps along the route map. Okay, I think we're on now. Great, okay. Well, I'm joined here by Joe Pike, the Chief Executive of the Scottish Wildlife Trust, and we're here out in the Water of Leith, enjoying nature and just reflecting on some of the journey that we have come through on the conservation finance and so now is an opportunity to reflect a little bit more on the overall challenge the one billion pound challenge as it has been called in Scotland so you have said on a number of occasions that the one billion pound challenge is not a fundraising target could you say a little bit more about what it really is yeah so this is a challenge that we set to a really broad group of stakeholders who came together with the aim of finding a pathway to new forms of finance. So the Billion Pound Challenge document, the route map that we published last year, I like to think of it as a a guidebook rather than the guided tour. You know, if you go on a guided tour, you've got an itinerary, you know exactly who's going to take you there, you know how much it's going to cost. This is the guidebook that points the direction there's still so much further to go. We, we got to base camp by the end of the, the project and you'll see that in the document if you look at the route map. Um, so this is not a fundraising campaign owned by a single organisation. This is a, a collaborative effort to make Scotland a place where conservation finance changes from something that feels quite obscure and complicated into something that feels easy and obvious and and actually why have we never done this before this is this is part of um, how things work and we understand that our natural environment underpins 
everything in our economy and our and our well-being. So uh, it, it's not a fundraising target owned by somebody. It's it's much broader than that. Um, one of the things that we have uh, worked on together as a, as a community in Scotland mm. has been creating this conservation finance pioneers network. Uh, now, currently, 160 people from mm. across different sectors, different backgrounds, everything from uh, people running their own nature-based solution businesses, all the way through to landowners, politicians, uh, public sector representatives, and uh, um, and people from a variety of environmental NGOs. Mm. Um, could you say a little bit more from your perspective about how important relationships and people are to making this one billion pound challenge really work? Yeah. I think that on so many levels we are only going to solve these problems if we recognise that we're all part of the problem and therefore we all have to be part of the solution. So that's, that's one thing. But I also think that because these issues are really complicated, it's only by bringing together people with a really wide range of perspectives that you can start to find a way, that, you know, find a path through, through these complex issues, but also unearth some of the potential unintended consequences that might come to pass if you didn't think about them because inevitably in any new area there are risks and therefore the broader the conversation and the more open and inclusive that conversation the more likely it is that we'll spot those risks <clears throat> but I think also um, the easier it becomes to try and define this this common language and I think that no one sector never mind no one organization or no one individual person has the answer so this this has to be really multidisciplinary really inclusive and, and at the end of the day it's because what's going to happen on the ground is going to be relevant to communities it's going to be relevant to the resilience of communities it's going to be relevant to um, the the health and well-being of people in in scotland and, and beyond um, so that's why i think it has to involve all of us The strong interest in the route map to a billion pounds investment in nature from Scottish Government. And that's because their economic recovery plan after the impact of Covid is to enable a just transition. Scottish Government's looking to create new, less extractive, less environmentally damaging business towards new nature-enhancing models. Ensuring that the change happens fairly and equitably for everyone, that it is a just transition, means that we need to be investing in nature to benefit urban and disadvantaged communities. I'm in Glasgow meeting Derek Irving, the Director of Development at the Green Action Trust. The Trust has been instrumental in establishing the Vacant and Derelict Land Task Force. We're at Crown Street, it's in the Gorbals area of Glasgow, and we're standing on a grassy area. It's principally the frontage to other buildings. But it's located in the second most deprived decile, and the site is gradually deteriorating in quality as it's not been maintained. We've just come round the corner uh, to the rear uh, entrance of the sports centre where it's a bit quieter than the main road uh, and I'm here to 
ask Derek a few questions. Derek, why were we just looking at that space? Um, it's, it's a really interesting example. Um, past land use development and decline has left much of urban Scotland and to some extent rural Scotland with a, a legacy of vacant and derelict sites. Uh, most recent full set survey data, which is 2019, suggests that there's about 3,500 of these sites over 0.1 of a hectare across the country. It's about 11,500 hectares of land. And actually on top of that, there are many more, much smaller sites tight into to where people live and work. Mm. And about three quarters of that land is actually, tucked, is actually in the central belt. Most of it to the west, which is where most of the industrial heritage lay. That land is causing economic and environmental damage, but crucially it's also causing social and health damage to neighbouring communities. And potentially all of it could be reversing that impact and delivering benefits. So this is a real wasted resource for Scotland. So the site here is, is on the edge of one of the most successful urban regeneration programmes that Scotland has, has seen in the last so half century. So that's the new Gobles. Um, but it's typical actually of a lot of the smaller sites that lie around the periphery of anything that happens in our towns and cities. The pockets of land that are left over as development happens, either being held onto as a, uh, with the hope that it'll be something in future, or simply just missed off the, uh, the edges of, of, uh, of development, sitting between A and B. This site's rapidly deteriorating in quality, it's unsightly, it's attracting antisocial behaviour, but it's actually in full view on one of the key routes into the city from the south. Um, it's potentially part of a much wider green corridor that could run the whole distance down the Clyde through the city itself, um, scooping in things like the local college, so creating a real facility for people who are living and working in the area. Um, and of course, this bit of Glasgow is going to be getting a lot of attention later in the year as COP26 moves into the venues down, uh, downstream uh, and in the city centre itself. So what's the potential for the wider vacant and derelict land resource, that 11,000 hectares you were yeah. talking about? Um, it's an interesting question. As part of the work that the Vacant and Derelict Land Task Force did and reported to government last year, um, and ongoing work that, that, that's going on looking at private finance options, um, the Green Action Trust and my employers, uh, we're proposing that vacant and derelict land sites should be actually priorities for blue-green infrastructure or nature-based solutions um, as part of the drive to becoming a net-zero climate-resilient country. Some of those sites will be perfectly located to become local green spaces and provide a facility for people to, to get out and uh, enjoy their local environment, which post-COVID is a, a very high priority. Mm. Others could be key components of flood water management. Um, they could be part of the wider access and habitat networks to bring nature right into towns and cities. And there are also quite significant opportunities for renewable energy generation through things like ground source heat or, or mm. solar farms. I think crucially, from, from our perspective at least, the greatest concentration of these sites is in areas that are suffering the highest levels of disadvantage. And you mentioned in your, your introduction, this is in the, uh, the second decile of, of, of those measures. The percentage of people living within 500 metres of a vacant and derelict site, if you live in the, most, in the least deprived decile, the most affluent, is about 11% of us live close to a site like that. When you drop to the most deprived decile, we're up to 55%. And actually, there are geographical spreads. So if you live in North Lanarkshire, it's 75%. So action on vacant and derelict land is a really important part of tackling inequalities leading to a fairer Scotland and a just transition. We're particularly interested in the potential for installing what I mentioned as blue-green infrastructure. So putting these things in early, so flood water management, access routes, active travel connections, early on to unlock sites 
for other types of development. So the site we looked at there could be a green space, but it might turn into something completely different that is facilitated and actually is a much better version of that solution. Um, so hopefully that would lead us to a situation where we had greener developments and we could see net zero housing, industrial and mixed developments with high levels of usable, usable green space and sustainable water management built in and actually connected to other places without us having to rely on the background of, of cars over there. Um, and what we're hoping is that these will become the standard solutions and actually start to lead what we do rather than being things that drag us back. What is stopping the changes that you're talking about happening at scale? Well, there are plenty of success stories out there. The total amount of vacant derelict land is slowly reducing, although at the rate it's reducing now, it might take a couple of hundred years to completely be eradicated. Um, but there are a number of challenges which constrain both the rate and scale of change. These tend to relate to outdated or inaccurate expectations of the development value of sites. So a site has been identified at some point in the past as having a, a particular value and it's being held up there regardless of the, the findings that it's still there 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the line. There's often difficulties to find out who owns sites. So if, if an external player or a local community wants to do something, it can be very, very difficult. But two of the biggest factors are actually a lack of capacity and resources focused on doing things um, developing and delivering change and there's a perceived risk in getting involved in vacant and direct land projects on sites because they may be costly to reinstate because of contamination. So what, what we often then see is that neither the private sector nor communities get involved and it leaves an increasingly stretched public sector to deal with all the, 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 the changes and with all the responsibility for action. You just mentioned the private sector and their finance. How could that contribute to a greener solution overall? Well, it's an area we're putting an awful lot of work into at the moment. Pr private development's always had a part to play in restoring vacant direct land sites, but this tends to be on a site-by-site -site basis for specific end uses. But we're working with partners um, across the environmental and financial sectors in Scotland to explore the opportunities for large-scale private sector, private finance investment into vacant and derelict land portfolios of sites, with returns based on the combination of the benefits that are delivered, the costs that are avoided, and the profitability of the resulting site developments. So the idea of unlocking sites to a greener end use. And does existing public funding help with that? We've been looking actually across Europe and actually wider at how these um, models tend to work and everywhere we look there's a public sector component to the funding. It's never going to be a purely private sector one and there's a range of ways this is done. It's done through grants, it's done through levies, it's done through um, various other mechanisms, bonds and, and, and such like. Um, across that range generally what we're seeing is that the public sector's role is reducing financial risk or building investor confidence so by putting in a, a cornerstone funding um, it, it allows the private sector to get more involved so we would anticipate anything that comes forward in scotland as a solution perhaps linked to the the agenda and discussions around cop 26 would need to be based on a blend of public and private finance and, and look at a suite of vacant and derelict land solutions ranging from some which are strongly environmental and biodiversity driven or climate targeted um, through to greener other economic uses. So we might well see a lot of new development that is actually uh, much greener than it's been in the past. What next then, Derek, for the public sector partners and the private yeah. sector? Um, well, I suppose it's, it's a, it's a two-pronged attack, I guess, from, from this point onwards. We've got all the existing mechanisms and approaches in place people like the Green Action Trust where, where I work and the, the local authorities and the Land Commission 
we'll, we'll continue to push through with those and to get the, the best and greenest and most inclusive projects from, from, from those things. So that will include the, the government's investment programme continuing for the next four years. Uh, and they'll be worked directly by the local authorities themselves and, and the key agencies like SEPA and Forest and Land Scotland. But there's a role there for private sector developers as well. And I think increasingly we'll, we'll be pushing to try and broaden and increase that level of partnership working. Uh, the investment fund is targeted, the investment um, programme is targeted at local authorities, but there's no reason why it can't be done in partnership with private players. And we're going to be looking in much, much more detail at this blended finance approach, which may take a wee while to get, to get put together. Um, my anticipation is we'll probably pilot it pretty much in the area where we're standing, looking at the, at the Clyde as a key focus because there's so much uh, density of, of, of opportunity here. Um, but we're going to use a, a couple of fringe events alongside COP26 to pull together academics, practitioners and some of the, the big finance investment uh, banks to try and look at what that might look like. What are the benefits that can be used to, to generate returns? Where does risk need to be reduced? So looking back at those very key questions around barriers at the beginning. Um, so hopefully we'll, we'll use what we've got as well as we can and we'll develop something new which is blended and works much, much better. We've heard about three exciting projects in Scotland that are securing investment for nature-based solutions. But that's nowhere near the billion pounds we need for lots of projects to start up. I'm one of the leaders of the Scottish Conservation Finance Pioneers Group. If you're a fellow pioneer interested in investing in Scottish natural capital projects, you can join us online too. You'll meet other organisations and individuals who share the same goal of investing in a greener, fairer future. You'll learn about the natural capital projects we are working on in Scotland and you'll help shape the future of investment in Scotland's natural economy. You can help us find new routes to the first a billion pounds of investment in nature. We need investors, communities and land and farm businesses to join and take our journey together to new green investment mechanisms, job opportunities and projects. Can I ask you, Joe, then, so, you know, the £1 billion challenge, why is it not £100 million? Why not £10 billion? OK, it's a really good question, and the answer is a simple one. Essentially, we chose the billion pounds because we really need to get people to think bigger and, and scale up. We know that the nature crisis is, is now at a stage where it's, it's not an option to simply wait and see if we've got enough money to tackle this, this problem. There's a huge gap. It's been estimated by all sorts of different organisations at the global level, at the UK level, but the bottom line is the gap is huge. And so we've got to scale up our thinking and figure out if we're bringing new money in, then that's, we don't, we're not talking about bringing in you know, a new £100 here or £2,000 there. We, we've really got to think big. Um, and I think if Scotland could become a really active contributor to this international effort. When, when we embarked on the Billion Pound Challenge, we did a lot of learning from what is going on elsewhere in the world. We, we you know, cast the net far and wide. And so there's lots of parallel learning going on in other places. And I think that's why we're starting to see interest pick up in what's happening in Scotland, because other people want to learn from us in exactly the same way as we want to learn from other people. We're at the start of a crucial decade of action for nature. Decisions made this year will impact future generations. 
That's why we need to make sure these changes are included in important global agreements such as COP26 to lay the foundations for an equitable, nature-positive future with net-zero emissions. We're going to need that billion pounds to make sure that more projects like the ones we've heard about today get started. A low-carbon, nature-rich future can revitalise our economy and take advantage of the exceptional natural capital that we've got in Scotland and the rest of the UK. The Scottish Conservation Pioneers Group is pushing for policy change top-down and enabling and energising action from the bottom up. We want to develop new mechanisms that can deliver returns for investors, whether they're private businesses, public agencies or communities. By securing public and private investment in nature-based solutions via projects like Riverwoods, Lens and focusing on vacant and derelict land, we will help Scotland rebuild its natural capital so that future generations have a better world to live and work in. You can find out more about Scottish natural capital projects and how they can be invested in by searching online for the Finance for Nature programme hosted by the Global Ethical Finance Initiative at COMP26. Also, do type Scottish Conservation Finance Pioneers into a search engine and join our group. Finally, I'd like to offer thanks to the interviewees. Andy Griffiths of Nestle, Lucy Philby of SEPA, Derek Irving of the Green Action Trust, Joe Pike and Bruce Wilson of Scottish Wildlife Trust. Thanks for the interviews support from Ruchir Shah and Rory Sanderson of Scottish Wildlife Trust. Also to Helen Avery of the Green Finance Institute and to John Utley of Nature Scott for their support on the shape of the script for the production. Our audio producer was Robin Lieburn of Fairly Media, and we used a short sample of Scottish natural sounds from Inchadney via freesound.org. The podcast was funded by Nature Scott and SRUC. I'm contactable at hannah.rudman at sruc.ac.uk. Thanks for listening, and goodbye.